Good morning, Community Church. Welcome to a brand new series that's going to bring us all the way up to Christmas, if you can believe it or not. Welcome to Go and Tell. I want to start off with a question. I think it's a great question. If you had to respond to this, what would you say? What do you think is the greatest danger facing our church right now? What do you think is the, if, if our local church, community church, if we were to have a significant problem, if we were to stumble and fall as a church, what do you think that danger could possibly be? What would that look like? Well, let me tell you a few things that I actually don't think it would be. I don't think the greatest danger that we would face would be a drifting away from our faith. I really hope that that would never be the case. I believe we have our foundations deeply in the Word of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. I think we have a strong doctrinal statement. I think we have incredible elders in this church who have an eye, a very careful eye on that. I just don't think we're going to drift away from the faith. I don't think our greatest danger is financial. Now, we just finished a three-week series uh, about generosity and about what God is doing in our communities right here at this time. And the truth of the matter is we have a very generous church. Uh, and I think we also have a team of amazing trustees in our church and they have an incredible watchful eye over the finances, over every penny that is spent and in the direction that every dollar goes to so that it glorifies Jesus Christ. Uh, and it's done with competence and it's also done with integrity. I don't think that, that was, that's a potential trap for us. It's possible, but I don't think it's one of the greatest dangers for us right now. I also don't think it, it would be what I would simply describe as organizational. I think we have a clear sense of mission. We want people uh, to be led into a focused life with Jesus Christ. And we have a clear plan for people. We, this gathering right here that you're a part of, uh, we want people to be a part of that gathering. We want people to be connected in with a group and we want people simply to live that out. And uh, I, I just don't think we're going to experience organizational drift right now. I think it would be personal drift. And what I mean by that is, I think the danger that faces community church is that it's altogether possible that we could in some way kind of just sit back a little bit uh, we kind of talked about this last week when we looked at that bell curve. We talked about this dangerous word called success. When you get to the top of the bell curve, like, oh, things have grown, things have gone well. The, the church has become, there's lots of people in the church. Or even to say, you know, we're not a perfect church, but this is a loving church. Or we've got great programs. And in that moment, the temptation for personal drift is that we sit back ever so slightly and we begin to say things like this. Well, what's in it for me? If I'm a part of it, what do I get out of this? I don't know if those are the best question for, for me to ask or for you to ask. Because what we might forget to say when we're concerned about what we get out of this is this. People matter to God. Lost people matter to God. Do they matter to me? If we ever get away from that, we're in danger. Please listen to this. We live in a world of massive, urgent, physical and spiritual need. 
Let me say it again. We live in a world of massive, urgent, physical, and spiritual need. And if we fail to point to Christ, if we fail to help people see him and find him and reach for him, then we've missed it. In fact, what I want, even for today, and particularly over these next few weeks, and you may not like this, but I actually want you to feel rattled. I want at the end of this sermon for you to feel a little unsettled, even for the rest of the day or even over the next few days, that something would be kind of, you feel like you're, man, I'm, I'm wearing this. I've got this feeling uh, deep inside of me and I feel a little bit rattled. I hope you leave today sort of convicted with very specific people on your mind and on your heart that you know they need Jesus Christ. And I have a heightened awareness about that and I feel powerfully moved that maybe I need to do something about that. Leading people into a focused life with Jesus Christ must never ever become pretty little words on a plaque hanging on some wall somewhere. It's the mission. It's the mission of this local church. It's your mission. It's my mission. And, and Jesus he pretty much said that this is our mission. Listen to his words. Just about one of the last things he said after the resurrection was this. I want you to go into the world. I want you to proclaim the gospel. Now that word is so important. A proclamation, which means you have to open up your mouth. I want you to proclaim the gospel. I want you to make disciples. I want you to teach them everything that I've taught you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the question is, are you on mission? Are we on mission? Yes, even in the middle of a pandemic. I, I don't know how I can be on mission when I'm so closed off. I don't know that we can even think like that. I think every day we're on mission. What is the mission statement that is written personally on your heart? Because I think it's possible that we could have, you know, even a big church and a wonderful church and a kind church with strong faith and, and good doctrine and, and steady in the word and, uh, and generous people and still miss it, still miss the point entirely. Because ultimately, the mission statement that matters most is the one that's on your heart. So are you on mission? Do lost people matter to you like they matter to God? I think the biggest danger that we face is personal drift. So these four weeks as we approach Christmas, what I want to do is I want to stoke the fire of the gospel in you. I want that to be fueled up. I want the heat to be turned up in terms of that urgent need of the gospel coming out of your life. And I want every person that is a part of this church family equipped and active and engaged and on mission to the point that as a result, I literally cannot wait to hear the stories that will start from today over the course of these next few days and weeks on the run up to Christmas where we truly hear about family and friends of yours who like they find trust and faith and repentance and they find Jesus Christ like new life. I cannot wait to hear those stories that happen. What a gift for Christmas. Why? Because we live in a world of massive, 
urgent physical and spiritual need. That's where we live. I was reading uh, an author by the name of David Platt and he tells this story, a pretty incredible story. He took a trip to Nepal. He says, after they arrived at the border of Nepal and Tibet, they are living at the highest altitude that you can possibly live at, if you call it living. He said, the villages that are on those trails, they will give you a picture of physical poverty like you've never imagined. Research from about 10 years ago shows that half of the children in these villages don't make it till the age of eight. I have three children. The idea that one or two of my children would not make it to the age of eight. I'm not okay with that. That's unthinkable for me. There was a story of one lady in, in a particular village. She had 14 children. Two of her children made it to adulthood. Village after village. We're talking about like no food, no water. They are dying of, I mean, things that we know how to fix. They're, it's dysentery, diarrhea. They're dying of these things. They're dying due to a lack of extremely basic, basic needs that you and I would, wouldn't even blink an eye at. And then traffickers come in to these impoverished villages and they're con artists and they are conniving. And it doesn't take much to convince a family, why don't you just give us your 10 year old daughter? We'll bring her back to the city. We'll get her a job. She'll have opportunities. She'll be able to send money to you. It'll be a better life for her. And for the price of about $100, people are handing over their 10-year-old daughters, their 12-year-old daughters, where they're taken into the city and they are broken and they are abused repeatedly. And then they're put to work doing whatever men want to do, sometimes 10, 15 customers a day. I mean, that's just hard to even say out loud. We bump into Luke where Jesus is talking about this idea of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. I mean, what, what, what if it was your kid? What would you do? What if that were your child? I mean, I would just do something. I don't know what I would do. I would just, I would just move heaven and earth. I would do something to prevent this, to stop this, to change this urgent physical and spiritual needs. The story goes on. He said they traveled for about five more days until they got to these locations where they just found these places where people just had never, ever heard about Jesus Christ. The one that we just sung about minutes ago, they've just literally never heard of the name Jesus Christ. They do not know who this is. And then the author, um, he says he comes to this place it's called Pospatai. It is a, a Hindu holy river. And look at this imagery. It's so powerful. He says, floating on top of this river, they have set up these floating funeral fires for people who have passed away. And their custom is this. When a, a friend dies or when a family member dies, they bring the body down to this holy river within 24 hours. And they place the bodies on these floating fires where they set them ablaze so that their bodies turn to ash, which go into the river, and that's what they believe helps with the process of reincarnation. 
And the gentleman who wrote this, who, who experienced this, he says, he's standing there. Look at this picture. He says, I'm looking at a river with floating dead bodies and people are standing at the edge of this river and they're wailing and they're weeping at this picture because they've lost their loved ones. This is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. That's what's going on in this place. 24 hours ago, they were alive, but now they're burning in hell forever. And as if that isn't heavy enough, then it hits them. 24 hours ago, they were alive, but nobody told them. Nobody told them how to go to heaven. Nobody told them about Jesus Christ. Nobody told them that somebody has come who has defeated death. Nobody told them that there's someone who can come and forgive their sins. What is it going to take for us to reach the conclusion that the idea of an unreached people group is unthinkable for us? That we become completely intolerant of that? We live in a world of massive, urgent, physical, and spiritual need. And we don't have time to play games at church. We don't have time to waste our lives with casual cultural Christianity, which actually isn't Christianity at all. You are merely a dash. Maybe you've heard of this before. You go to any cemetery, and you will see, carved into a piece of stone, a date representing the year that you were born and a date representing the year that you died. And in the middle is a dash. And that's your life. You are a dash. How can we make, and how can I make this dash count? This is the only life that I get. This time, this energy, these resources, how can I make them count for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the spread of the gospel? Yes, across the world and yes, across the street where I live. Acts chapter 7 shows us a picture of how God has designed every single one of us, every dash, every single life, that our leadership over people's lives counts for the spread of the gospel. Right where we live, right where we are, to the ends of the whole earth. Let me show you this picture of the church. There are two primary characters in the book of Acts. Two main characters. One fellow by the name of Peter, and there's another gentleman by the name of Paul. And the temptation to think of, the temptation to think is that, oh, the gospel and the birth of the church and how that expanded, it was those two guys. Because they're like these superhero, incredible, amazing, faith-filled supernaturally gifted followers of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it. They were incredible men. And the temptation is to think that's how the gospel moved out into the world. Check this out. Chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. 
And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Hmm. The main premise here is that all of this started, the birth of the church, the expansion of the gospel with ordinary people. Just think about a single dash. Yes, Peter was there. Paul emerges a few chapters later. Powerful ministries, there's no doubt about it. And they had roles that God had them to play. But watch how it all starts. Watch what it leans on and functions in its ordinary people. Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Up until this point, seven chapters in, the gospel is stuck in Jerusalem. Here's the question. Who's going to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem? Look at verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Except the who? Except the apostles. So this could not have been just the super leaders, the mega amazing followers of Jesus Christ. This actually was brought about by ordinary people. Look at verse, uh, ch- uh, chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far off as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, remember that, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So what we have right there in chapter 11 of the book of Acts is the founding of the church in Antioch. Now the church in Antioch is one of the great mission-sending churches ever. They're the ones who actually end up sending Paul and Barnabas all over the known world at that time. So the question is, this great mission-sending church, who founded it? And guess what the Bible tells us? It doesn't. Some guys founded the church. We don't even know their names. Some unnamed Jewish people with no official direction, with no church planting experience, with no mission board behind them, with no seminary training, just some guys who had the gospel inside of them who started this great mission-sending church, probably one of the greatest in the history of Christendom. I'm 16 years of age. 
and I'm standing on Grafton Street in the city centre of Dublin. Uh, Grafton Street, uh, the old song says, is a wonderland. It's a wonderful place to go. It's pedestrianised and it is, there's always hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, within the space of 10 minutes, thousands of people will walk up and down Grafton Street. It's a beautiful place. It's full of musicians and buskers and food and shopping and this park and it's just a great little location. And me and a gang from church, we used to go, go out there every week and we just were out there to tell people about Jesus. And we did all kinds of things. We would do skits on the streets. We would do music. We would do these boards where we do these presentations. We would do questionnaires. We'd go up to people. And by the time they got through the questionnaire, we pretty much had given them the gospel and there was, you know, a challenge in their life. We'd get up there with a microphone and just start preaching. We would just, uh, we would just do that. And there was a gang of us who did it. And I'll never, ever forget. Um, one day I'm out there and we're just talking to people about Jesus. And I had my questionnaire. And, you know, people would take the questionnaire and then they'd, a lot of people would tell you to take a hike. You know, no, I don't want to talk about religion. Get away from me. But I remember this one guy and we got to the end and I said to him, I said, so, I mean, do you need a forgiver in your life? Do you want to ask Christ to lead you? And do you want to follow him? And, and to my shock, he said, yeah, I do. And I'll, I'll never forget, I put my hand on his shoulder. I'm 16 years of age, I put my hand on his shoulder and we bowed our heads with just hundreds of people just walking all by us and we, I just led him in the sinner's prayer. I mean, praise God. The reason why I tell you that story is because that's God's plan. That's his mission right there. That's an ordinary 16-year-old kid. And listen, I get it, sometimes the idea like that person who might preach on a Sunday, sometimes we elevate that person. And I know I've done that myself as I've listened to others. And, and I would encourage us really not to do that. But I, I understand. But look, this wasn't Alan Cullen with any ministry experience or any seminary. Forget all that stuff. This was a 16-year-old teenager who had just had the gospel inside of him. That's the plan. That's what I want for you. The spread of the gospel is not dependent on people who have these super gifts and abilities. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he has these words in there. They're fairly rude. Look at what he says to me and to you. You ready? He says, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were smart. Gee, thanks, Paul. Not many of you, he says, were wise by human standards. That's his language. Look at this. Many of you are like something that is not. That's quite the compliment, Paul. <laughs> Imagine saying that to somebody. You're like something that is not. That's what he says. And then he's not even done. He goes further. He says, but God has chosen, ready for a description of you and I? the foolish things of this world, to shame those who are wise, to confound them. God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. That's us. That's ordinary people with extraordinary power. 
Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is going to come down and it says when he does, you're going to receive power. Acts chapter 2, we see the immediate fulfillment of that promise. Try to imagine this scene, if you can just let it kind of sit in your mind for just a, for just a moment. It's the day of Pentecost. That's the day when the Holy Spirit comes with power. And it says suddenly there's this sound, like the sound of a rushing wind, and it fills the entire house where there's, and the, the, the disciples are sitting there. And then it said, these just this like a lick of fire, these tongues of fire are sitting on top of their heads. Imagine, like in your house right now, the person may be sitting next to you, like just the sound of a rushing wind in your kitchen and in your living room. And then you look and you see this fire over their heads. Incredible. That's what we're called to. That's the power that God makes available to us. And then it says they begin to speak in other languages. And people, they can't understand this. They're just bewildered. How can this be? How is it we all understand you? And look at what it says. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Paphilia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, they're filled with new wine. And Peter has to go up to them and say, look, we're not drunk. And just imagine the scene, imagine the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, these men who are petrified are now standing out in the middle of the street and they're saying the one thing that nobody wants to hear. Peter looks at them and he says, this Jesus Christ that you crucified, you missed it. He was the Messiah. He came to rescue you and you ruined it. You rejected him. And 3,000 people, I mean, it's this, what do we need to do to be saved? And they come to Christ. Now just sit back for a minute and realize that the same Holy Spirit that did that amongst those people is the exact same Holy Spirit that's living in you. The Spirit of God, the Spirit who is sovereign over the stars in the sky, the Spirit who reigns over every speck of dust in the universe. This is the God who puts his power inside of you. Why would we ever want to limit God's work to some professional speaker or some, you know, upfront person? When the Spirit of God is living inside every single one of us, you are going to do greater works than even I have done. So our primary equipping strategy as a local church, because we do not want to drift away from mission, it's you. It's sending every believer to go live it out, filled with the Holy Spirit, to leave these gatherings online every week and go into those places and make connections with friendships and every circle of influence that you have in Mount Pleasant and in Alma and all of these surrounding towns and in this nation and in this world with the power of God inside of you. That's what we're to do. And they're preaching. And the Spirit of God is inside them. 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And it says this, and you will be my witness. Now here's the cop out. <laughs> you ready for this? this? I hope this rattles you. Well, the way that I tell people about Jesus is by the life I live. You know? And people can see. You know? People in my office, they say that I'm different. I've been working with them for 20 years, but they know I'm different. I'm really nice. You know? People can tell, you know, that I'm a nice person. I smile. <laughs> I smile at people. I, in work, I'm not like everyone else. Oh, there's an old-fashioned phrase. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you'll hear this for the first time. You know, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I mean, yeah. But how about we just use words as well? I, I just look at that thinking and I, it's a cop-out. It's, it's an absolute cop-out. How about that and we open up our mouths. No, you see, the Spirit of God is inside us so that we can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit comes is they speak. Peter stands up in, that, in the middle of that street and he begins to preach. This is the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. I, I guarantee you, like there's nobody on that team that would have been like, let's use Peter as our spokesperson. Nobody was picking Peter, but the Holy Spirit picked Peter. The very last prayer that Jesus prayed when he was dying on the cross was actually a prayer for the lost. Father, would you forgive them? Church, I want you rattled today. I want you to see the Savior. His love was not being sort of conveyed in a careful, subtle, cautious manner. He wasn't concerned, you know, if I tell them that I love them, will they love me back? No. His arms are pinned back. He's roaring about his love. There he is on this cross, whipped, naked, tortured, his lungs collapsing, pinned. And he looks you in the eye today and he says, go tell everybody, tell the whole world. God wants to use you, filled with the person of the Holy Spirit, to bring truth to those who need Jesus Christ. I want you to take a moment right now and I want you to grab a scrap of paper and I want you to write down three names people that you work with, live close to, a relative, an old friend, and you've got relationship. And I want you to keep that little piece of paper. I want you to put it in your wallet, in your pocket, in your purse, in your car. I want you to carry it with you. I want you to stick it up against the mirror where you brush your teeth every morning. I want you to look at these names. I want you to begin to pray for these names from now until Christmas. And let's see what the Holy Spirit does. Let's pray. Father, this Christmas season that we're moving into, would you set our hearts on fire for the lost?
for those in dire need of a savior? Would you stoke the fire in our souls? Would you rattle us, God? Would you convict us as carriers of your spirit, as carriers of this truth, of carriers of the gospel, that we would be men and women on mission, not drifting from mission, so that your good news would pour out of our lives and pour out of our mouths in such a way that one more and one more and one more would find the person of Jesus Christ. A lacerated, bleeding savior, dying a slave's death for us and an empty tomb. Lord, that is the gift that we ask you for this Christmas. Would you give us the lost? Would you give us the power of your Holy Spirit? and boldness to lovingly, authentically proclaim Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. And the